Hello and welcome to Grafana's Big Tent, the podcast all about the people, community, tools and tech around observability. I'm here with Tom Wilkie. Hi Tom. Hi Matt, how are you doing? Good thanks, not bad. How are you? Yeah, very well. I'm, uh, I'm in the middle of moving house. Oh, sounds heavy. <laughs> I'm glad we only have to do it once every eight years. Yeah, that's nice. Oh, are, we get, are you going far? Nope, just the end of the road. <laughs> okay, that's fair enough, normal. Yeah, the house we're moving into is almost identical to our current house. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm questioning why we're doing it. <laughs> just moved into the exact same house. Yeah, just the mirror. Yeah, great. No, fine. Yeah, but sometimes it's annoying if the doors are on the wrong side or something and you want to switch. I understand. All the light switches are in different places. It's so confusing. Yeah, it's going to take ages to figure out what's going on. Today, we're talking about service level objectives or SLOs. A uh, very exciting issue and actually very topical. We're joined by a couple of uh, really great people, actually, Tom. Uh, did you have to say that? Was that part of the part of the deal with getting them on? Yeah, I asked them to write their own intro. <laughs> no, but really strong and fast is Matthias Leubel. Is that how I pronounce your name, Matthias? Almost. Matthias Leubel, but that's fine. Yeah, no. Okay, welcome to Grafana's Big Tent, Matthias. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're a software engineer at Polar Signals, right? Yeah. So at Polar Signals, we are creating a kind of Prometheus-inspired continuous profiling project, mm -hmm. which is called Parkas, an open source project. And it kind of tells you where you're spending most of your CPU and memory, and you can save money or improve latency by improving your applications. So if that doesn't sound interesting, <laughs> I don't know what is. Maybe SLOs is, is more interesting, but we'll, we'll see. It is today, yes. But we will actually revisit that particular subject, continuous profiling. So check out our other podcast episodes for that. Uh, we're also joined by Bjorn Robinstein. Bjorn, welcome. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And where do you work, Bjorn? It's a weird company called Grafana Labs. <laughs> I have a big tent approach to things, and I like that, so I work for them. Right, yeah. That's not as good a pitch as Matthias just did for Polar Signals, though, Bjorn. <laughs> but there we go. I, uh, I first met Bjorn, it was, I think, five or six years ago, mm. and it was in KubeCon Berlin, if I'm correct. Really? Or did we meet beforehand? I think we met in London. Right? Oh, we, yeah, you came to London, didn't you? And a little known fact, Bjorn was actually the person who invited me to join the Prometheus team. Mm. I, I am to blame. I didn't know that one. Yeah, Bjorn's a problem. Yeah, it's Bjorn's fault. Okay, so let's, let's get into this then. Um, starting at the very basics then, for, pe for somebody who's never really heard of SLOs, what are we talking about here? What is the point? So before we, before we do that, so do you want to... Why Bjorn, why Matthias? Why are you the two people to... Uh, to have talking about SLOs. You know, Bjorn, I believe you did quite a popular blog post uh, at SoundCloud. What was the story behind that? Yeah, I mean, that's a long story. I, I was an SRE before it was cool, and SLOs have a lot to do with SRE, which I guess we will get into. And at some point, I left Google where SRE was kind of invented, quote-unquote, and then I joined SoundCloud where... We created an open source monitoring system called Prometheus. Back, back in the days, we had no idea that everyone will know that system and many will use it at one day. But yeah, that was when it happened. And then Google finally spilled the beans and uh, published SRE books, uh, the one famous SRE book and then the SRE workbook and more to come. 
And in that SRE workbook, there was a chapter five that is a really, really nice chapter about how to alert on SLOs. I mean, SLOs are all over the place in those books. But this one chapter is really a nice read because it gets you like piecemeal into how to alert on SLOs. And they use Prometheus or PromQL to express the alerts. And I really like that. And at SoundCloud, we obviously use Prometheus. And then I said, we can, we can implement that, right? And then I created a blog post on the SoundCloud tech blog, how we implemented this at SoundCloud. Very, very like hands-on. And I think that had quite a bit of following where people just read it. And then when I was at Grafana Labs later, I refined the same approach and included latency and created yet another blog post and a talk at KubeCon. And after all of that, I guess I kind of had a had some credits in the SLO scene. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. And um, Matthias, you you built a uh, a project to help generate the the rules and alerts for Prometheus. Did you did you use Bjorn's blog post? Yeah, I did use uh, Bjorn's blog post. Um, obviously, also started with the Google SRE books and uh, kind of like worked my way through these, and eventually kind of came to the point where I needed to kind of double check that what I was doing practically was sound and proof. So knowing Bjorn, I kind of reached out and <laughs> he was a great source of inspiration for all of that. And yes, uh, SLO Libsonet was using JSONnet to, to generate all the Prometheus alerting and recording rules to, to really have a higher level configuration mechanism for SLOs and to kind of like make it a bit more approachable for folks. And what, what's happened to, uh, to SLO Libsonnet now? So SLO Libsonnet is kind of um, superseded by another project called Pura, which I was uh, working on for the last year with a uh, designer to, to create an even better user experience with the UI and hopefully one day a nice editor for creating SLOs visually. But yeah, that's, that's been the thing I've been up to in the last year. And SLO Libsonnet is kind of too, too technical um, and too much in the weeds. So I'm, I'm trying to move on from that and, and have something even more easily accessible. I know the whole uh, JSONnet thing can be a bit of an acquired taste, but I, I like it. I, I thought your library was awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 still, I still like it and I would still use it for more advanced use cases. That's definitely, it has a place for that, but I want to kind of like bridge the gap for folks that neither know SLOs nor uh, know about JSONnet. Uh, so that's what I'm trying to do. And we'll post links to these projects in the show notes. And we'll also post a link to that Google book. Who, who should read that Google book, by the way, the, the SRE one? Everyone. <laughs> yes. Okay, now, I mean, that's, of course, not everyone. But everyone in the profession of running reasonably complex services, let's say, in the cloud, I think, even if you're not seeing yourself as an SRE, I think um, this is just part of generally applicable knowledge these days. So if you are doing anything reasonably complex and you serve it on the internet, you should probably read at least the first SRE book and then you can pick and mix and match from the others what you need. Adding on to that, I think generally speaking, if you receive alerts and get paged a lot, I think it's the thing to read and improve your life. Uh, just just stating the simple facts like that, I think, yeah, you should definitely check it out. I, I think this is what this 
time gives us that even normal people in our profession can easily serve like services that are based on incredibly complex system with all the the cloud offerings we have so all of a sudden it's every everyone's business to think about complex systems distributed systems and how to run them and how reliable are they and then we get into this whole topic why slos are all of a sudden why all of a sudden everyone talks about it i mean i think that's a good segue we we've kind of dived straight in how about we take a step back what what are slos Right. What what does it stand for? Why are they why are these things important? Yeah, I mean SLO stands for service level objective, which you could claim explains everything. Um, there's also other acronyms like SLA and SLI. We should get into it later, I guess. But very generally, this is where you have an idea which kind of quality of service you will provide. That's often linked to uptime, but as we will see in modern systems, uptime is not as easy to define. So it goes into error rates, error budget. So it's in general the idea that you are not just trying your best to run your service and make it available always. A bit with the insight that that's actually an impossibility, practically. And then you start to to talk about how, yeah, what's your service level? How, how much of your service are you able to provide on average in a certain time frame? Yeah, I think the certain time frame aspect is really important to me. Because like every other alerting style out there kind of like looks at, hey, what's like the uh, error rate in the past, like five or 10 minutes. And then like if it's above a certain, certain threshold, it will alert. But with service level objectives, you kind of look at the broader scheme of what is my service going going to be like or what, what is it? What is it supposed to be like over like four weeks? And then you you kind of start uh, working uh, towards that objective or goal. So what would a, what's an example of a, like an SLO, right? Can you, like, how would you phrase an SLO? So generally speaking, uh, or like the example I, I like to use always is a simple one that people can, can refer to, which is you have a website and that website has a landing page and you want that landing page to be available always. I mean, that's like the goal. It's not a goal that's a real world goal. So you need to kind of define how many errors can you have when serving that landing page? And maybe it's 1% of the times users go to your landing page, um, it's fine to, to show a 500 error and it's still good enough for 99% of the other people. So that's always kind of the, the easiest example I can come up with. So if like a, a non-technical CEO comes in and says, no, I'm not, I, want, I don't want there to ever be any errors, like you should have zero errors, what would, what would you say to somebody that... Has that position? Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> I think there are so many variables at play. Like, obviously, um, technical people know about DNS uh, being the problem always, but there are so many other things. And then even there are aspects in the request and response type of systems we have that you don't even control, right? And we might not even be able to measure. So um, it's always good to keep that in mind. Like maybe there's an error on the on the client side as well and taking these into account as well. So there will be errors and it's just how many are acceptable. Yeah, exactly. So it kind of starts off by just being honest by the fact that this is, nothing's perfect, uh, you know, so. Yeah. But that even can be a difficult conversation with the, with some people. So that that is a good point to start with, I think, which is that we just have to be honest about this system and what it's going to be, be able to do. 
One of the things I've noticed in this industry, right, there's a, a big push for, you know, related topics like continuous delivery, right? We should be deploying new versions of our software, you know, daily, hourly, right? I found, you know, SLOs are a great, great way of kind of trading off the ability to, you know, move quickly, move fast and break things, right? The famous Facebook saying, right, versus the, you know, the ability to provide a reliable service. So, you know, one of the, you know, once you admit, okay, 1%, 0.1% of requests are allowed to fail in a given period, in a month, right? Suddenly that's the, that's the other side of the, do I release this feature today with the risk that it might break things, right? And you can measure both of these. You can measure your release velocity and you can measure your SLO performance. If you're doing worse than your SLO, maybe slow down releasing. You know, one of the, one of the things I've always found, you know, back, back when I was at Google, right? The, um, periods where we didn't release software before Christmas and, and Black Friday and so on were often some of the most that uh, had the highest SLO performance because nothing changed. And when you don't change things, nothing breaks. Um, and this is like, it's a, I found that SLOs were a great lever when talking to the commercial side of the business, like a great lever to have that discussion. How much risk do you want me to take? Which, which might be one of the reasons why SLOs are so popular in SRE because what some people don't want to hear at SRE is sometimes I call it the anti DevOps because it's, it's more like SRE is more about a very, very large company, uh, has realized they need to find a way how like ops and dev can talk to each other and, and work together properly. And the kind of the naive DevOps approach is more like, yeah, we'll just make it all the same thing, but that doesn't work and really large companies so they couldn't do that and slos are in a way what tom just said are a very good way of like objectively find out are we moving too fast and breaking too much or uh, are we actually moving too slow and everything is super like nothing really happens but we're also not innovating fast enough and then you have a a way of talking between all those different stakeholders and find find a good middle ground how how quickly to move one of the things I've always struggled with um, is this idea of uptime versus request-based SLOs. So, Matthias, when you said earlier, like, oh, my website should be available all the time, like, but I'm allowed a certain number of requests to fail, it's an apple and oranges thing. Like, Bjorn, how do you, how do you convince someone that a request-based SLO is, is what you should offer? Uh, and why, you know, why is it better than a you know, loaded question here, right? Why is it better than an uptime-based SLO? I mean, there are, there are two things, right? I mean, the uptime-based SLO is the one that is very intuitive. And it's also something you kind of know from before the days of complex distributed computer systems. Let's say your, your water pipes or your electricity at home, right? You want this to be always available, but we would all agree that you cannot expect to never have a power cut or to never have like no water at home, but you don't want it to happen every day for an hour or something, right? So you have a certain tolerance. So that's a like perfect day-to-day -day example where you would define an SLO. You just didn't call it that way back then. On the other hand, this is also a very simple thing. It's on or off, right? You, I mean, of course, power supply could also be weird and flaky and not have the right frequency but to simplify powers on off right so you have this easily and you also need it almost all the time but for servers you as a user might only use in certain periods of the day you aren't even interested in the service being up at night it's kind of free uptime if your service provider claims the service was up all night you just didn't use it <laughs> 
also, and I think this is even more important, a a modern complex service. Like if you if you serve a website which has like a dozen different elements on the page, it's not that it's always either completely up or completely down. It might be flaky. It might just some parts of it are missing. So you get into this area where you can't even define it as clearly up or down. And then it becomes more interesting to say, okay, which percent of requests that the user sent to me was I able to respond to in time and truthfully and all those things. And that's where, where it, yeah, it gets much more interesting and much more appropriate to complex systems. So I think that's, that's, all, that's all well and good. But when, um, you know, when I'm selling a piece of software to, you know, to someone in procurement and they say, I want this to be available, you know, 99.9% of the time, and I'm, I'm like, I'll make 99.9% of your requests succeed. It's like we're talking two different languages. I mean, how do you, how do you convince them that you are trying to give them something that's more friendly to them? Like, what, how, yeah, what would you say? I think, like, the biggest aspect is that up until you define an objective like that, you're just talking based on a gut feeling, and that really doesn't help at all. So... Let's move from a gut feeling, which might be completely false. In fact, I'm reading a book called Factfulness, and that talks in, in great detail about our gut feeling being, being wrong so often. So let's move away from that and let's really define something. Let's measure it. Let's have data on this. And then we can maybe start off uh, pretty low and then try to improve over time to get to something which is really tolerable and overall acceptable to the business. Yeah, I mean, I think in this regard that it really depends on this on the kind of service there are services that are consumed by machines there are services that are consumed by humans then there are services where you have a contractual obligation to fulfill a certain service level objective which is then called an sla we will come to that i guess uh, and then there are services where you don't have that like it's a free mail service or something and you make all your money from serving ads so then you you don't have a contractual obligation to your users but you still want the users to be happy and not run away and i think this is the key to how to design an slo that you have to look how is the service consumed and how are the users perceiving it either like intuitively or really sometimes it's just legally and the reality is that sometimes what you what you have in your contract is more important than what your users think but that again depends on the context and that's where you should start designing your your slo from and it could be indeed very different as tom said right and there are situations where like a time-based and an uptime-based slo is exactly the right thing there are times where a request-based SLO is the right thing or something where you have to mix things or you have to come up with something completely new. The, uh, that was interesting, the difference between SLA and SLO is whether, like, whether it's included in a contract, whether there's penalties or not. I know it's a bit kind of off-topic for this, but what kind of, you know, what kind of penalties make it an SLA, I guess? Like, what, what have you seen in, in, in these kind of contracts? I mean, I'm not making the contracts most of the time. Perhaps Tom knows more about that. <laughs> but I think it's it's an important thought that an SLA is essentially the last thing you do because that's when you when you like you start to go into contract negotiations, you sign a contract in the very end of essentially from the developer's perspective, it's kind of almost the end of the life cycle where you you actually now sell it properly to the customer. While an SLO is 
exactly the opposite in an ideal scenario, which in practice doesn't happen so often, sadly, you start your whole software design process with the SLO. You, you want to know what your SLO is before you even start designing the software, because a 99.999% uptime is very much different to design for than something that it's, if it's 80% available, it's already fine, right? I mean, there are those services. So it's a very different thing. And you could see this as very opposing ends in the life cycle. Yeah, so um, SLA then, service level agreement, and SLO, service level objective. Are they the same thing, though, but one just has a contract around it? Or do you tend to publish different things? Do we Are we that transparent with customers? Like, what's what do you think the right way to do that is? I mean, some people say an SLO should be more ambitious than the SLA just to, to defend against. I would again say this depends on the system design. Uh, for some systems, it makes sense to just like have a bit tighter thresholds for your SLO than for the SLA. But for other systems, it doesn't really make sense. If it's like falling off the cliff thing, it doesn't even matter if you, if you have different thresholds here. I mean, I think more important is really SLOs, the input into your design, what you design for. I mean, you might iterate on it later, while SLA is what comes out of it in the end and what's written in the contract and what you have to pay and compensate people for if you, if you breach it. Matthias, do you publish your SLOs, like publicly or? So it's a really good question. Um, I think that people have a couple of SLOs uh, published on kind of like uptime trackers, and that's where you can take a look at them. But generally, I think most uh, organizations try to keep it internally and kind of measure themselves against those, but still some somehow communicate when something's wrong with the users. Yeah, I don't think uh, I don't think we publish our SLO performance at Grafana Labs. I think we just yeah we we have a manually updated status page. But we do publish, you know, I think our SLO like terms, like the publicly available SLO for Grafana Cloud is is on our website somewhere. I wouldn't be able to find it, but I'm pretty sure it's there. But you do you do circulate them internally though. So like that is very helpful, like having that visibility internally of of, of what's going on and things. And I think that's Yeah. That's uh, something we should definitely talk about later. It's one of the big kind of cultural changes I think in the past year or so is is sending a a, a weekly report on SLO performance and, and I didn't do it to name and shame people, I promise, um, but it had that effect. <laughs> anyway, let's, um, before we go, I'd, I'd, I'd really like to dive into a lot more detail about like, you know, how you build these SLOs, what techniques and technology you can use to make this, make this whole process easier. But before we do, is there any kind of like, you know, I, I guess my question is like, how do I know what the right number is, right? Is it, is it 80%? Is it 90%? Is it, is it 99.999? Like, how do I know when I've got the right SLO? Yeah, um, again, a really good question. And that com comes up a lot when people first start out. Um, what I always recommend is look, if you have the data available of your current system, use the data, measure what the current uptime was over the last month or so, and then kind of use that as the foundation to base your uh, objective on uh, for the coming months. And then really, they are never set in stone, so you can always adjust them. Uh, ever so slightly, I would say, and refine, and then that should give you a really, really nice foundation to to continue. I think in the ideal world, you are actually, I mean, in practice, that's totally valid what Matthias just said, right? Uh, but I think 
in, uh, to, to set a contrast here, in, in the ideal world, you would never just look at your last month's performance and like adjust your SLOs. That's kind of a bit like how well can we do and now we should, whatever. Like, I mean, it, it makes sense in practice, but in the ideal world, you would do a product research and you know exactly what your product should be delivered with, with which service level you want to deliver your product to have the best outcome for your customers, or then you have an idea how expensive would it be to make it more reliable and how much happier are my customers then. And I mean, this is, it's not completely academic because that's like, I think Google is very obsessed by that, uh, but other service providers as well, when they realized it actually matters if the website renders in 100 millisecond or 200 milliseconds and they made research. I mean, I don't have precise numbers here, but they find out something like if your website renders in 200 milliseconds, you will have 12 point something percent less customers. And then you can actually put a price tag on this and then you can come up with a real concrete idea. We want this website to render in 100 milliseconds because and then you set this SLO and then you can start to design your software. It might happen that you find out this is incredibly expensive to realize and to implement and then you have to adjust. But ideally, you really come from like hard science facts why you want this SLO for your product. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, I'm just burned by the real world, I guess, and people <laughs> not having a clue in the first place. So I, I kind of recommend starting out there, but obviously... You've got to start somewhere. Exactly. You've got to have a number that you iterate on, right? You might just have competition. The competition promises X and you think, okay, I'm a new player on the market, but I realize uh, engineering wise, I can actually design for that. And so why not offer X plus two or X minus 50% uh, to be a good competitor? The interesting, the way, well, the way we came up, well, so this is kind of jumping the gun a bit. The way we came up with our query latency SLO for our cloud metric service was by effectively like we, we we effectively did what you said, Matthias, right? And we looked at historical performance. And we're like, yeah, that's kind of what it is. And we'll, we'll stick to that. But then realistically, when we tried to sell it, I mean, it was fine selling it for small deals. But when we tried to book our first large kind of uh, six-figure deal on our cloud metric service, the customer wouldn't accept that SLO. And that was really the kind of like, it was the process of improving query performance until they're like, yes, it's good enough. Now we'll sign the contract. And that was where our current SLO got locked in, got set in stone. It was like the first six-figure deal. You know, we get we we do occasionally, very occasionally now get customers who go, we want a better SLO. You know, and, and performance of the system has improved such that we can actually just offer them that now. But yeah, it was it was actually in that process of negotiating, perhaps not as scientifically as, as Google and Amazon did with their hundred millisecond page page loads, but really working with a customer until they thought the performance was good enough to pay for was where the, the, the objective came from and, and the, the actual language for the SLA as well. So that reminds me of like building products in general. You know, ideally you're taking, there's some of it you're doing yourself and some guesswork and some assumptions, but the best information you get is from real users, from people that are actually going to end up uh, either buying it or using it. So yeah, it kind of reminds me that. Also that speaks to why you should get thinking about SLOs earlier in the process as well. A bit like you should with the user experience. Yeah. Before we before we talk about the details and the technologies, I've got one last like uh, pet subject. And and why is it that that SLOs are always quoted in percentiles and never in averages? Bjorn, why 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 do we use percentiles with SLOs? 
Okay, so first of all, if you're if you're more interested in are you up or do you serve errors, then this is most like a percentage of time you're up or it's a percentage of requests you serve correctly and you're not so much interested in latency. When you talk about percentile, I think you're more into latency goals, which uh, means how quickly do I serve the request? And I mean, obviously, if, if a user wants to load a page and it takes an hour to load, it's not of value for most users. So you want to set a threshold, but then averages have this problem that a single very large outlier will blow up your average. And that's usually not very relevant for users. It's more like if it loads within two seconds, I'm happy. And if not, I'm unhappy. And then there's a bit of, of tolerance in between. So it makes way more sense to phrase it as in how much like with what percentage of requests have I served within two seconds? Or the inverted thing is the famous percentile. At what latency have I served 99% of the request? And this is where you come up with those percentiles and where like, yeah, having histograms is very important, which is like one of my other favorite topics <laughs> in this whole area. The, uh, your um, slo.libsonnet and, and the Pyro project, does that, does that support using uh, histograms and, and percentiles for setting? Setting latencies, Matthias? Yeah, for, for latencies, most definitely. I mean, like Prometheus itself uses histograms to measure latencies or has the histogram quantile function, right? So overall, you set the latency in, in the query in, in, in inside the config, and then what you get out of it is measuring the percentiles. So that's exactly right. So we talked a bit earlier about error budgets. Can we dig into that a little bit? What is an error budget? Yeah, I mean, an error budget is, if you want, an inverted SLO, right? It's, or let's say if you have a specific kind of SLO, which is based on error rates or success rates, let's phrase it in the positive way, you, you've promised the customer you will serve 99.9% .9 of the requests correctly and in time. Uh, then the in inverse of that, the 0.1% you have left is your error budget. And now you need a kind of billing period, which usually if you have an SLA is nicely formulated in your contract. If you, if you just have users that come and go uh, because you serve like a free product that, that just makes money with ads or something, it's not that formalized. But you might still want to have like some billing period, which is often a month, right? Often you say within a month, I will serve you 99.9% .9 of the requests correctly and in time. So your error budget is 0.1%. And then you get into this idea that you burn your error budget. If you have an outage one week into the month and a certain number of requests has, has fa have failed, then you know you have burned whatever, 20% of your error budget, but you are also already 25% into the month. So that's kind of fine, right? You, you burn your error budget at the right rate. <laughs> and then if you, if you burn it too quickly, you can start to say, okay, let's, let's act a bit more cautiously. Let's not do this risky new feature launch this month. I mean, it's a bit artificial that you have this monthly boundary, but sometimes that's literally in your contract. Uh, you could do some floating thing if you want, but I mean, it's also not, it's not about precise numbers here. It's about getting the broad balance, right? I mean, if you, if you have to reimburse your customer because you're in breach of your SLA, it's a different thing. But from the developer perspective and this whole balancing between the ops people that always want stability and the devs who always want to push new features, uh, that's a very useful tool. It requires you to have an like error-based or success-based SLO. 
and it might not be your final SLO or your final SLA, but it's it's a good start <laughs> and a good part of it. And also it allows you to create alerts, right? So you can, and this is this whole chapter five in the SRE workbook we talked about. This is all about that, that uh, you cannot predict how much, like if there will be a huge outage on the last day of the month, but you can do a bit of statistics and say, okay, like within a certain time, I only want to burn a certain percentage of my arrow budget to be on track essentially. And that is what you can alert on. And that is what like a metrics-based monitoring system can do really nicely. And all those alerting expressions are quite complex, but that's why you have an expression language like PromQL, where you can nicely express all those alerts. And that's a very, very powerful way of alerting, kind of proactively, not too often, and usually not not, not uh, too rare, that you get um, yeah, non-noisy, meaningful alerts out of it. So to make this a bit more real, right, like I, I will admit to not fully understanding the the expressions and the maths behind the error budget style alerting that, that Bjorn's implemented or that, that, that Matthias's tool implements as well. But when we started offering this, this um, SLA on our metrics, um, on our metric service at Grafana Labs, right, we, we agreed, you know, it's 99.5% it's of requests complete within a couple of seconds. I, I, I don't remember the details. So we built an alert that said, you know, in a five-minute moving window, if more than 99.5% of requests Oh, sorry, if 0.5% if of requests are, are slower than, than a couple of seconds, page us, right? Um, that seems like the obvious thing to do, mm. right? So we built that alert, and, and it fired, you know, not all the time, but, but, you know, multiple times a week, multiple times a day sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and yet, you know, and we would scramble to scale the service up, to, to diagnose whatever issue it was, and, and generally put a lot of effort into optimizing that. And yet, at the end of the, every month, when we went and ran a kind of report to say, what was our 99th? 0.5 percentile latency over the last month it always came back like you know 200 milliseconds i'm like how can these two things be true like we are way below the slo we agreed with the customer we're way we're well inside our sla and yet we're getting paged multiple times a day yeah that's that's the core of the thing right the if your billing period is five minutes then your five minute sliding window is precisely right this is when you promise the customer every five minute window always will never have more than 0.5% of errors. But if you have a billing period of a month, which for the systems we have, and usually for the requirements we have, is much makes much more sense where you can say, we, we average over a month. So that allows me to have like a five minute or 10 minute, even if it's a complete outage, which is rare with our systems, but it could happen. That's still okay if like the rest of the month is totally fine, right? That again depends on your product, on your users, on your contracts. But that's the the important thing. We don't like having this like non-noisy SLO where every five minute window is less than 0.5% errors is usually very, very expensive to get. And it's also not what users require in most of the cases. And that's where you get into those averaging. And that's where the alerting also gets more complicated, right? To not make it noisy because no, you can't have in every five minute window that. So you, if you have like a 10% error rate over five minutes, sure, alert me, right? But if I have an 0.5% error rate, it's kind of precisely what I'm allowed to do. So perhaps I shouldn't run that close to my limit all the time, but if I run that close to the limit for a day, it's probably fine. And if I don't even have to page because it's such a slow burn, if I see this, I can after three days tell 
the the SREs or the DevOps people or whoever runs this, listen, you have burned precisely your right amount of error budget for three days, but it shouldn't be worse. So perhaps you want to half that, right? So you'll get a non-paging alert that can, uh, well, developer can look into it. Perhaps you should push a, an improvement for that. And it's But it's not urgent. We don't, I don't have to wake somebody up in the middle of the night and that person has to drop everything and repair things. I mean, it was night and day when Bjorn put this in place for our metric service. We went from paging every few days, sometimes multiple times a day, to only paging you know, every few weeks for, for, the, for this particular alert. And when it did page, there was something wrong, right? When it did page, there was an actual issue that we could solve. You know, the, the, the drop-in performance was urgent. The, the drop-in in, in success rates was caused by an actual, like, error caused by a, a, a rollout or an outage in an underlying service that we relied on, right? So this, this night and day, this reduction in pager noise, you know, when, when, the te- when, when Bjorn implemented it for the Cortex group inside, um, inside Grafana Labs, like every other team very, very quickly was like, oh, we want that, right? And, and copy and pasted the, uh, the alert rules that, that Bjorn had built and implemented them for their own service. And we saw a huge reduction in our, our, our on-call load. But I want to get into... Like, how does this work, right? Because as you point out, like, alerting on your threshold on five-minute windows breeds a huge amount of noise. But if I built, like, if I alerted on a one-month window for that threshold, you know, a complete outage of the system might take three or four hours before it built up enough of a impact on my error budget for it to actually page. And I want to know about a complete outage, you know, sooner than a few hours, right? So how do the, how do the error budget style alerts kind of give you give you that you know trade off those two different um, requirements yeah so the that's exactly what the uh, multi burn rate alerts are uh, described in chapter 5 of the uh, SRE working book and the way it is handled is by combining multiple time windows really so over like a 5 minute window for example if that breaches the certain threshold it would fire but then that might be too flaky as you said right so we want to give these engineers only if something really bad happens uh, a page and you can combine that by having an end statement with a time window of over an hour so combining these it has to be bad for uh, the five minute windows but it also has to be bad enough uh, over one hour and com- combining that kind of reduces the flakiness overall. I'm sure Bjorn <laughs> can can give a bit better mathematical explanation, but that's that's how I think about this. And then you combine like different windows. So overall, like the biggest window is the entire objective window. So if that fires, you know that at the end of the month or at the end of the window, you won't have any error budget burned. And then there are certain steps or certain kind of like uh, severities in between um, from, oh, this super urgent, everything's on fire to, to the kind of, yeah, like if you continue down that road, you will have no error budget left. So it kind of, kind of separates that nicely. But yeah, Bjorn has probably a way better mathematical explanation. I was going to ask that though. How, how should te- how should teams do this if you don't have a Bjorn to come in and just do this for you? Like, Does everyone not have a Bjorn? <laughs> I don't think everyone yet has a Bjorn. <laughs> There's been scaling issues in the rolling out. We've not been able to roll out enough Bjorns, um, so <laughs> unfortunately, no, not everyone has one. But 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 so how did they find out this? 
Uh, I mean, the mathematical details are probably not good to to explain in detail in a podcast, <laughs> but that's why you can just click on the links in the show notes and 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 read in in that chapter. And that's I think it's also not rocket science. Like those various burn rates and window length that are on that chapter are. Yeah, I mean, you could you could you could tweak them if they don't match your your purposes. But I think it's not even that important how many windows you have and how big they are. It's kind of once I mean the the huge breakthrough is that insight that there are different windows and you have different burn rates. And the moment you have that, uh, you will have the biggest return. And if you tweak them a bit, do I really want to like alert on a one hour window if I have ten times my burn rate that is allowed or something uh, that doesn't even matter that much i mean yeah tweak tweak as you see uh, during your daily life but what we saw in practice what is way more likely that you have to tweak is that you measure the right things and those things that are way more relevant than than tweaking those numbers to the last digit so i wouldn't even worry too much about the math behind it um luckily we have those like cookie cutter approaches where you can actually uh, use those rules uh, without understanding a lot of all the mathematical detail or even the exact PromQL formulation you have in your alert. Mm. So every budgets tend to be percentages then, right? Because it's the, it, it, assuming that's what you've said as part of the SLO. So which makes sense, you know, as you add features, you may have more errors, but hopefully you're getting more requests, you know, to sort of balance it out. Is it a bit like, do people start to think of this like you use it or lose it with your error budget? I mean, is it, is it, do teams worry that if we're too good for too long, that that's going to shrink down and then we've sort of set ourselves up for failure in the future? I mean, that's, that's another thing, another reason for not using your SLO based on your past performance, right? Your SLO should be based on the actual product requirement. Mm -hmm. But you could argue if a product, I mean, there are just products who are perfect and they don't see a lot of development and they just do their thing. So there is certainly nothing wrong if they just run reliably and only if you really have a power outage in like two of your data centers or something, you, you see any blip. But if you have a product that is being iterated on, which is probably more normal than the other case, then you could always argue you should use your error budget, right? It's, it's, a, it's kind of a, it's an asset to have an error budget. And if you don't use it, perhaps you should, you should do a bit more like risky or, uh, yeah, just dare, uh, something and, and, and push this feature. Um, that's kind of, it goes both ways, right? If you're consuming your error budget, if you're over your error budget, it's obviously bad. But if you don't have, if you don't consume your error budget, it's maybe also bad for not so obvious reasons. Mm. That is really interesting. It's a bit like local government. If they don't spend all of their thing, they don't get it next year. So use it or lose it, people. Yeah, as Tom earlier said, like I think the balance in terms of reliability and velocity in terms of shipping uh, new features kind of really comes into play here. So use use the error budget wisely. Don't over uh, use it either. Like you want to be able to not yeah, annoy your customers <laughs> either, right? But if there's so much left, then use it for something good. And shipping new features certainly is a good thing. Coming back to that question you asked earlier, Matt, if teams don't have a Bjorn, if everyone doesn't have a Bjorn and we haven't perfected human cloning yet, mm -hmm. I think that's a good segue to, for Matthias's project, Pirate, right? Like, can I, Matthias, can I use Pyra to do this for me? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what we built Pyra for. So 
We we kind of started out, uh, Nadine Fehling and I, we, we started out looking at who are the personas that, that use SLOs. And we identified that most often it's obviously SREs, no big surprise. And then we then we actually started interviewing uh, a handful of people and had conversations, like a long hour conversation with them and trying to figure out, like, have you used SLO? If not, like, why haven't you used them? So on and so forth. So we tried to like really kind of like figure out what are the entry barriers to, to using SLOs. And out of that came the Pura project, which now is able to give you a high level configuration file where you can put in your objective, your time window, and then an indicator. So an SLI that kind of like uses a Prometheus metric. And then it does all the like prompt uh, queries for you. It, it creates the the multiple burn rate alerts for you. Um, so all of that is taken care and you don't really have to think about anything else than kind of, yeah, the high level uh, things we were talking about, like what is my objective? What is the time window we're talking about, et cetera. So um, that, I mean, that sounds really cool. Like uh, how, do I, how do I use this? Like, you know, what do, I, what do I have to do? You build this config file and then... Yeah, exactly. So it is a CRD, so a custom resource definition kind of based configuration, but it also works outside of Kubernetes. But yeah, it's, it's like every SLO is a configuration file. Once you, once you've written that one, um, it gets loaded into either a Kubernetes uh, controller or just a file system runtime that reads these configuration and generates the output for Prometheus uh, to then read and kind of do all the heavy lifting of like alerting and ingesting. So it's not really doing that on its own, but it's kind of like, yeah, standing off the shoulders of giants, uh, utilizing Prometheus in, in the right way and correct way and everything from the alerting is everything that you know from Prometheus. Like if there's an alert, it goes through alert manager and then goes to Grafana on call. Um, and you can use that to other on call products are available. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. So yeah, you can, you can just use your normal workflow and it just like ties into uh, your existing Prometheus instances. That's very cool. Yeah, it is very cool. When should teams engage with this project then? Like, is this something you should get set up from the beginning? Or is this something you do much further in the life cycle? That's a really good question. So I would recommend get your hands dirty as soon as possible. Just like uh, deploy it and see uh, what is my uptime uh, right now? What's the availability and where do we want to go? You can obviously, um, as Bjorn said, take a more scientific approach and, and approach it from a different perspective and then put these SLOs in place and see how you're doing against those. But yeah, I would say... If you want to, or if you have already alerting that's that's quite noisy, then it's already a good next step for you. One of the things I was uh, I was very impressed with Pyra is its uh, its user interface, right? I think you know we've we've focused a lot on alerting with respect to SLOs, but there's this kind of other this whole other aspect to like, oh, I actually want to go and see what my current performance is and my historic performance, and not just be told uh, when it's broken. And you've built you've built quite a rich um, user interface for exploring. SLOs and, and past performance, haven't you? Yes, exactly. That was one of the things that came out of the interviews with the uh, SREs that we that we had last year, and we 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 also were discussing having just Grafana dashboards, which obviously I've built tons of, and like um, that would have been really easy to just do. 
but there was something missing um, in terms of this very specific use case that was the SLOs and trying to kind of like have this overview and then also being able to really drill down into uh, specific SLOs and trying to figure out how they are doing. And one other reason is we want to be able to have a nice editor for you to like eventually uh, we want to have that for you to kind of visually explore these SLOs and define them and see kind of like life as you're setting the objective. How will my arrow budget uh, look like and, and so on and so forth. So there are certain things that just weren't possible out of the box with Grafana dashboards. You don't uh, you don't you don't have to apologize, Matthias. Like, uh... no, no, it's. I just want to... You don't have to use Grafana for everything. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, like overall, I think um, that was like one of the reasons for everything else. I think I still, still love Grafana dashboards. Well, I think, I think your UI makes the whole topic of SLOs and, and the work you've done really accessible as well. And there's this interesting side effect I've noticed. We, we, we have a similar system. We don't use Pirate, but I've noticed that once you start giving people an interface where they can see performance of their SLOs, then within the organization, teams want to be in that interface, right? They want to see themselves in there. So we started a project, you know, we using Bjorn's uh, rules that he built, um, we started generating dashboards and uploading them. And then we, we started, you know, emailing a PDF of those dashboards to everyone in the cloud team every Monday morning. And, you know, at the time it only had like Cortex and Loki and Tempo in there. And over time I found teams submitted PRs to our config repo to add themselves to that dashboard effectively and generate their own alerts and generate out entries in this dashboard to see their SLO performance. And now we've got, I mean, there's like 30 or 40 SLOs defined in here and it's become a service directory, right? It's become a service directory of all the services inside Grafana cloud and their performance. And whenever this email goes out on a Monday and, and SLO performance isn't, you know, isn't green, isn't hasn't hit the rest low i get an email from the team saying why and it's great i never asked for this like but they feel that responsibility and and culturally like slos internally have been a great driver of kind of like oh we should all report our slo performance in the same way we should all have it visible in the same way we now have a, a quasi kind of service catalog i i think these cultural changes the adoption of slos and and the really high quality alerts that come with it have actually probably been one of the more profound things that have come out of this piece of work. I think something like Pyra could drive that in other organizations. So it's something, I'm, I know this is not a question, this is just a statement at this point. It's just something I'm really excited about. Yeah, do you think it's the gamification of some sorts that, that drove this uh, internally at Grafana Labs, where people are kind of like really after making a good availability? Um, I, yeah, probably, right? You know, there's definitely, I mean, all the changes to the definitions of alerts are peer-reviewed, right? So you can't just slip in a like, oh, you know, we'll, we'll ignore all failures that happen on a Wednesday. You know, that would never get through through a code review. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm confident they're not gaming the system in that respect. But I think the, once you, you know, there's that old adage, right? You can't improve something until you measure it. Well, I would kind of modify that to be like, you can't, you know, you have no uh, motivation to improve it until other people see you measuring it and see it getting worse or get it be getting better, right? So kind of the the exposure that, that this has given to SLOs, I mean, it's reviewed at the very highest levels in the company and it's probably one of our most used dashboards now. And I just think it's uh, the cultural changes in the organization have been really profound. I really, you know, now this has got nothing to do with SLOs, but now that we have a curated list of services and we have metrics exported from every region 
describing the performance of that service, we're actually using these SLOs and the recording rules we generate to measure the, the progress of new region rollouts, but completely unrelated to SLOs. But we can now see, is this service working in this region? Because we've got an SLO being exported by that region. And just like the benefit of having a well-curated service catalog that the engineers care about being accurate and correct, because the problem with every service catalog I've ever used is it's always out of date. You know, it just, just have really been, really been quite profound. We don't have much time left, but I wonder if there's space for any kind of gotchas that we could cover to help people. Like what are common mistakes people make for this or other tips and tricks? And one of them I was going to ask, and I have heard this before, we talked earlier about the optimization, like the, the homepage has to load within 100 milliseconds. I've seen as part of continuous integration systems where they'll measure things, you know, things that they care about. And that becomes acceptance criteria, really. And you can't even merge it if you've done something that's uh, slowed it down too much. What other sort of tips and tricks do we think are worth sharing? I, I think at this point, um, where SLOs have become like really like a buzzword and, and everyone wants them. And I see that we have like conferences by that name and everything. So it's really popular. And I think we get into this into this phase of the life cycle where it's it's kind of probably fairly easy to convince your organization to adopt it but then you you they they turn it into the other way where they think it's a magic wand and will fix everything um, so I think there's a lot of if you if you do this for the first time you have so much easy returns right what Tom said that the alerts are suddenly like two orders of magnitude less noisy. You can suddenly talk about so many things in a more meaningful way. Uh, your resource planning might might be well more, way more informed, but then you run into all those little problems in the details and you might get super frustrated if your expectations were super high. So I would really see it as a tool you, it will give you a lot of early returns, but then you have to iterate on it. And for example, because Tom praised this introduction of those multiple burn rate alerts and error-based SLO so much, uh, this is, it depends where you measure, right? We try to, also measurement might be less more or less expensive so we we have a really easy measurement with our prometheus metrics but that's that that are metrics that are coming from the system so you can have external factors that if the requests don't even reach this system that measures them you wouldn't even notice that there's an outage right so if you have like something on the load balancer level and it's the load balance of your cloud provider so you you might there are a lot of details you have to take into account for the perfect slo measurement but yeah don't let perfection get into the way of the good try to reap those early returns but don't expect like magic and and then you iterate and then you get into the more complicated things and yeah, you will you will discover a lot of them, but but like don't don't get frustrated by them and um, be happy about the returns you get and don't expect that everything will be perfect from the beginning. That's the point of SLOs anyway, right? You won't be one hundred percent perfect, and that applies <laughs> here as well. You will be making mistakes, but just go for it, and it will be just good enough. I've got a, there's an interesting challenge we're facing at the moment of um, now that we curate these SLOs and they're really high quality and they're becoming important for our organization, we need to offer an SLO on our SLOs. Like how often are our SLOs accurate and reliable? You know, we were, I know over Christmas we had some issues with, with the data in our SLOs and they're not accurate for, for like a few days over Christmas. Mm. And so, yeah, 
you know, is there a whole meta SLO debate to be had? <laughs> we'll save that for a podcast about podcasts, maybe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I think we are running out of time. Any other final thoughts before we wind up? I, you know, I've, I found the, you know, I would admit that I was relatively naive about the whole error budget SLO uh, a few years ago. And when Bjorn joined and kind of showed me the way, um, but I think it's just been so transformational for the, for the, for the culture of like how we measure our performance at, at Grafana Labs. And I'm just so excited to see projects like Pyra, uh, and there are other projects out there, right? But, but make this available to more people and, if there's one thing I would say, yeah, you know, do temper your enthusiasm about how how impactful this can be. But, you know, I think there's reasons to be pretty excited about this. And, you know, the fact that this is getting that level of exposure to, you know, to managers, directors and so on, and, and, and that there is this level of adoption in the industry, something I'm, I'm just really, really excited about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the fact that you should use your error budgets like that as an idea is great. If, if you're way within your error budget, maybe you're not taking enough risks. You've got room for innovation. You can push the envelope a little. Yeah. That is kind of a great takeaway, I think, for people. Well, that, sadly, that is all the time we have today. Thank you so much, Tom Wilkie and our special guests, Matthias and Bjorn. I'm Matt Raya, and thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time on Grafana's Big Tent. Talking about the intro, I love the intro music. Is that inspired by Royal Blood or something? Like, it's very similar. Yeah, n- no, it was... Um... No, it was just kind of uh, happened, I think. I don't know. But I like it too for a podcast. Yeah, it's, it's something different. Yeah, for sure. I think so. But is it, is it, is it like a, a specifically made for this? Yeah. Like did somebody record it? Yeah, I made nice. it. I made it. You made it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I do sort of hobby music production. So uh, any excuse to make a theme tune for something, I'm there. Yep. <laughs> I'm straight there. What, was it like low-tuned guitar or was it actually bass? It's a bass, but check it out. It's a micro bass. Ah, nice. Yeah.